A Thousand Miles Up the Nile Section 41 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards Chapter 14 Carrasco to Abu Simbel Part 2 The scene was a barren sand-slope hemmed in between the town and cliffs and dotted over with graves. The actors were all women. Huddled together under a long wall some few hundred yards away, bareheaded and exposed to the blaze of the morning sun, they outnumbered the men by a full third. Some were sitting, some standing, while in their midst, pressing round a young woman who seemed to act as leader, there swayed and circled and shuffled a compact phalanx of dancers. Upon this young woman the eyes of all were turned. A black Cassandra she rocked her body from side to side, clapped her hands above her head, and poured forth a wild declamatory chant, which the rest echoed. This chant seemed to be divided into strophes, at the end of each of which she paused, beat her breast, and broke into that terrible wail that we had heard just now from a distance. Her brother, it seemed, had died last night, and we were witnessing his funeral. The actual interment was over by the time we reached the spot, but four men were still busy filling the grave with sand, which they scraped up a bowlful at a time and stamped down with their naked feet. The deceased being unmarried, his sister led the choir of mourners. She was a tall, gaunt young woman of the plainest Nubian type, with high cheekbones, eyes slanting upwards at the corners, and an enormous mouth full of glittering teeth. On her head she wore a white cloth smeared with dust. Her companions were distinguished by a narrow white fillet, bound about the brow and tied with two long ends behind. They had hidden their necklaces and bracelets, and wore trailing robes and shawls, and loose trousers of black or blue calico. We stood for a long time watching their uncouth dance. None of the women seemed to notice us, but the men made way civilly and gravely, letting us pass to the front that we might get a better view of the ceremony. By and by an old woman rose slowly from the midst of those who were sitting, and moved with tottering, uncertain steps towards a higher point of ground, a little apart from the crowd. There was a movement of compassion among the men, one of whom turned to the rider and said gently, His mother. She was a small, feeble old woman, very poorly clad. Her hands and arms were like the hands and arms of a mummy, and her withered black face looked ghastly under the mask of dust. For a few moments, swaying her body slowly to and fro, she watched the gravedigger stamping down the sand, then stretched out her arms and broke into a torrent of lamentations. The dialect of Dare is strange and barbarous, but we felt as if we understood every word she uttered. Presently the tears began to make channels down her cheeks, her voice became choked with sobs, and falling down in a sort of helpless heap like a broken-hearted dog, she lay with her face to the ground, and there stayed. Meanwhile, the sand being now filled in and mounded up, the men betook themselves to a place where the rock had given way, and selected a couple of big stones from the debris. These they placed at the head and foot of the grave, and all was done. Instantly, perhaps at an appointed signal, though we saw none given, the wailing ceased, the women rose, every tongue was loosened, and the whole became a moving, animated, noisy throng dispersing in a dozen different directions. 
We turned away with the rest, the writer and the painter rambling off in search of the temple, while the other three devoted themselves to the pursuit of baskets and native jewelry. When we looked back presently the crowd was gone, but the desolate mother still lay motionless in the dust. It chanced that we witnessed many funerals in Nubia, so many that one sometimes felt inclined to doubt whether the governor of Aswan had not reported over favorably of the health of the province. The ceremonial, with its dancing and chanting, was always much the same, always barbaric and in the highest degree artificial. One would like to know how much of it is derived from purely African sources, and how much from ancient Egyptian tradition. The dance is most probably Ethiopian. Lepsius, travelling through the Sudan in A.D. 1843, saw something of the kind at a funeral in Wed Medina, about half-way between Senar and Khartoum. The white fillet worn by the choir of mourners is, on the other hand, distinctly Egyptian. We afterwards saw it represented in paintings of funeral processions on the wall of several tombs at Thebes, where the wailing women are seen to be gathering up dust in their hands and casting it upon their heads, just as they do now. As for the wail, beginning high, and descending through a scale divided not by semitones, but thirds of tones, to a final note about an octave and a half lower than that from which it started, probably echoes to this day the very pitch and rhythm of the wail that followed the pharaohs to their sepulchres in the valley of the tombs of the kings. Like the zagarit, or joy cry, which every mother teaches to her little girls, and which, it is said, can only be acquired in very early youth, it has been handed down from generation to generation through an untold succession of ages. The song to which the fella works his shaduf and the monotonous chant of the sakia driver have perhaps as remote an origin. But of all old, mournful human sounds, the death-wail that we heard at Dare is perhaps one of the very oldest, certainly the most mournful. The temple here, dating from the reign of Ramses II, is of rude design and indifferent execution. Partly constructed, partly excavated, it is approached by a forecourt, the roof of which was supported by eight square columns. Of these columns only the bases remain. Four massive piers, against which once stood four colossi, upheld the roof of the portico and gave admission by three entrances to the rock-cut chambers beyond. That portico is now roofless. Nothing is left of the colossi but their feet. All is ruin, and ruin without beauty. Seen from within, however, the place is not without a kind of gloomy grandeur. Two rows of square columns, three at each side, divide the large hall into a nave and two aisles. This hall is about forty feet square, and the pillars have been left standing in the living rock, like those in the early tombs at Siut. The daylight, half blocked out by the fallen portico, is pleasantly subdued, and finds its way dimly to the sanctuary at the farther end. The sculptures of the interior, though much damaged, are less defaced than those of the outer court. Walls, pillars, doorways are covered with bas-reliefs. The king and Ptah, the king and Ra, the king and Amun, stand face to face, hand in hand, on each of the four sides of every column. Scenes of worship, of slaughter, of anointing, cover the walls, and the blank spaces are filled in, as usual, with hieroglyphic inscriptions. Among these, Champollion discovered an imperfect list of the sons and daughters of Ramesses II. 
Four gods once sat enthroned at the upper end of the sanctuary, but they have shared the fate of the colossi outside, and only their feet remain. The wall sculptures of this dark little chamber are, however, better preserved, and better worth preservation, than those of the hall. A procession of priests, bearing on their shoulders the bari, or sacred boat, is quite unharmed, and even the color is yet fresh upon a full-length figure of Hathor close by. But more interesting than all these, more interesting because more rare, is a sculptured palm-tree against which the king leans while making an offering to Amun-Ra. The trunk is given with elaborate truthfulness, and the branches, though formalized, are correct and graceful in curvature. The tree is but an accessory. It may have been introduced with reference to the date-harvests which are the wealth of the district, but it has no kind of sacred significance, and is noticeable only for the naturalness of the treatment. Such naturalness is unusual in the art of this period, when the conventional Persia and the equally conventional lotus are almost the only vegetable forms which appear on the walls of the temples. I can recall, indeed, but one similar instance in the bas-relief sculptures of the new empire, namely the bent, broken, and waving bulrushes in the great lion-hunting scene at Medenet Habu, which are admirably free and studied apparently from nature." Coming out, we looked in vain along the courtyard walls, for the battle scene in which Champollion was yet able to trace the famous fighting lion of Ramesses II, with the legend describing him as the servant of His Majesty rending his foes in pieces. But that was forty-five years ago. Now it is with difficulty that one detects a few vague outlines of chariot wheels and horses. There are some rock-cut tombs in the face of the cliffs close by. The painter explored them while the writer sketched the interior of the temple, but he reported of them as mere sepulchres, unpainted and unsculptured. The rocks, the sands, the sky were at white heat when we again turned our faces toward the river. Where there had so lately been a great multitude, there was now not a soul. The palms nodded, the pigeons dozed, the mud towns slept in the sun. Even the mother had gone from her place of weeping, and left her dead to the silence of the desert. We went and looked at his grave. The fresh-turned sand was only a little darker than the rest, and but for the trampled footmarks round about, we could scarcely have been able to distinguish the new mound from the old ones. All were alike nameless. Some more cared for than the rest were bordered with large stones, and filled in with variegated pebbles. One or two were fenced about with a mud wall. All had a bowl of baked clay at the head. Wherever we saw a burial ground in Nubia, we saw these bowls upon the graves. The mourners, they told us, mourn here for forty days, during which time they come every Friday and fill the bowl with fresh water, that the birds may drink from it. The bowls on the other graves were dry and full of sand, but the new bowl was brimming full, and the water in it was hot to the touch. We found El and the happy couple standing at bay with their backs against a big lebitch tree, surrounded by an immense crowd and far from comfortable. Bent on bazaaring, they had probably shown themselves too ready to buy, so bringing the whole population, with all the mats, baskets, nose-rings, finger-rings, necklaces, and bracelets in the place about their ears. Seeing the straits they were in, we ran to the Dahabiyah and dispatched three or four sailors to the rescue, who brought them off in triumph. Even in Egypt it does not answer, as a rule, to go about on shore without an escort. The people are apt to be importunate, and can with difficulty be kept at a pleasant distance. 
But in Nubia, where the traveller's life was scarcely safe fifty years ago, unprotected Inglesi are pretty certain to be disagreeably mobbed. The natives, in truth, are still mere savages au fond, the old war-paint being but half disguised under a thin veneer of Mohammedism. Some of the women who followed our friends to the boat, though in complexion as black as the rest, had light blue eyes and frizzy red hair, the effect of which was indescribably frightful. Both here and at Ibram there are many of these fair families, who claim to be descended from Bosnian fathers stationed in Nubia at the time of the conquest of Sultan Selim in A.D. 1517. They are immensely proud of their alien blood, and think themselves quite beautiful. End of section 41